This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. I'm sitting here in my Doctor Who podcast shirt, drinking a beautiful beverage from my Doctor Who podcast mug, about to record the Doctor Who podcast. What shall we talk about today? Babylon 5? Babylon 5 got, oh, I don't know, we've either got Tom sitting in a caravan talking to himself and actually answering some of the questions that he poses himself as well, or I've got you over there, I don't know, sitting around all of your DWP merchandise thinking about other sci-fi shows. Anyway. I know, I know. It's it's hard not to. I, I draw my inspiration from Chip, our, our dear friend of the show, Chip, who loves Babylon 5 to bits, probably probably sometimes even more than he loves Doctor Who, I'm afraid. Oh, really? I've, I've never watched a single minute of... Of Babylon 5 but uh, I understand it's um, it was pretty much the mother of all sci-fi arc stories but uh, well, I don't think we would be where we are with Doctor Who today if it wasn't for the likes of Babylon 5 and oh, wow. shows of its ilk so it's that it's got that great an influence over current Doctor Who you think I think it does actually I, I think Blake 7 also contributes to that as well as as being a show that was a season-long story or, or had continuing storylines throughout the season. But but certainly as far as semi-modern sci-fi, Babylon 5 was one of the first ones that pioneered the idea of, you know, providing multi-season arcs. I'm, I'm sure Stephen Moffat knows of it. Oh, I'm, I'm sure he does. And uh, But I mean, I, I've, even I've heard of it, but, uh, but Blake 7 is something that I absolutely adore and I can certainly see its influences in modern Doctor Who. But anyway, listeners, hello. Uh, as you can probably tell, Trev and I are back. We haven't spoken for two weeks, so you're going to be in for a bit of a ramble this time around, I'm afraid, <laughs> uh, in episode 87 of the Doctor Who podcast. Trev, what have we got coming up? Well, in this episode, you were lucky enough to um, head out to the Doctor Who experience about a month ago, I believe, and uh, gave us a bit of an on-set report for that, which I'm very much looking forward to. And uh, I think pretty much the rest is just a little bit of a geek out. We're also going to announce the winner of the the competition that we launched a couple of episodes ago now when I had the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Andrew Smith, the writer of the 1980s story, Full Circle. So keep your ears peeled. If indeed you keep your ears ears peeled, do you keep your ears peeled or is it your eyes peeled? I don't know. Anyway, um, keep listening and we'll tell you who won that competition. You didn't notice the few entries I sent in for that one, did you? <laughs> well, nothing. Yes, I did notice a few very strange names, but um, and quite a few people got it wrong. So I'm assuming those are the ones that from you. Ah. Oh. 
Okay, as Trev said, I went along to the Doctor Who experience at Olympia 2 uh, about, well, it was indeed about a month or so ago now, and I didn't go on my own. Um, this was the second time I'd been, actually. The first time I went, I was supposed to be going with um, hmm, our dear colleague, Tom, who, who let me down. He blew me out last minute, and I ended up wandering around the experience on my own and was very conscious that I was double the height of most of the attendees. Uh, so I thought, right, I've got to leave, but I'm going to come back with somebody else so that I can really enjoy the experience and not worry about what everybody else thinks. Um, and I, I took a good friend of mine called Oliver. Now, those of you who listen to the Dad's Army podcast, um, there are one or two of you out there, I understand, uh, will be familiar with Oliver's dulcet tones. He's also a massive Doctor Who fan. And we had a rather good time there. Um, but what we decided to do was rather than just record our review, we went through a virtual walkthrough. So in other words, this is going to be us just after we've gone through the experience, which is about 20 minutes in length or so, going through each room and describing what you can expect to see there. So, of course, if you haven't been to the experience yet and you don't want to be spoiled, then you really shouldn't be listening to what's coming up next. If, on the other hand, you're overseas or you're not based in the UK and you're not going to get a chance to hear what's actually in the experience, then this podcast should be right up your street. And here we are in the cafe at Olympia 2 for the Doctor Who experience. I have the very great honour of being joined by Oliver Crocker, who, as some of you may know, is my co-host on the Dad's Army podcast. Oliver is also a massive Doctor Who fan. Oliver, welcome to the Doctor Who podcast. Thank you very much. What a great honour to be here. Normally we're marching on Wilmington on sea, whereas today we've been travelling around in a TARDIS, so uh, it's a great pleasure. Well, several TARDIS, actually. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. So what's the plural of TARDIS, that age-old debate? Is it TARDIS? Tar- Hard eye. Oh, who knows? Never mind. Who knows? <laughs> anyway, what we're going to do today is walk you around the actual experience. Now, as many of you know, there's two parts to the Doctor Who experience. There is the experience itself, which is a fairly interactive walkthrough kind of attraction, really. I think is the best way to describe it. And there's an exhibition after that that covers the show's history, all the way back to 1963 in some cases. And we're not going to talk about that too much today, because there's many other podcasts who have been there already. So we're actually going to go through, room by room, with you, uh, what you can expect if you go around the Doctor Who experience. And this is my second time, Oliver. So to start with, we go through this kind of portal, this tunnel, with lots of swirly time tunnel motions on it. And we go through a little mini-exhibition before going into the opening room, which is basically a cinema, isn't it? It is. At first of all, here we go. This is just a flash little montage um, where it's basically the highlights of the 11th Doctor's time so far in a you know nicely cut together video. You know. Now on the screen there are cracks, and uh, which I thought, well, obviously that's going to have some input, but I didn't actually expect the screen to actually, it cracks open. It, the, the screen splits open and then you start to walk through. So you actually walk through the screen after this video, which is um, a very nifty thing. James saw it coming, but he's, he's very good at these kind of things. I'm happy to go in, not with any real expectation, just to go and have a look and see what there is. And, and almost enjoy it from a kid's point of view. So it was quite fun watching the kids. Yeah. So yeah, you walk through then into um, some kind of museum library style room. Mm, it's based on The Beast Below, which is the second episode of Series 5. And it's got a few other episodes from previous series mixed in as well. But it's, it, it's a large room. It's probably the largest room, I think, in the, uh, the entire experience. 
and it's got props everywhere. It's got a big screen again on one side. When everyone's made their way through, there's a, a node, and the node is from the two parts are from series four, which is Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead. And you get a kind of museum guide introduction to that particular room, going through the exhibits and so on. And then you get interrupted by Matt Smith on screen. That's right, there's a big sort of red alert thing that goes off, and the node, the node goes a bit random. And that was quite fun, because the kids were all looking out there, their mums and dads thinking, what's going on here then, you know? Something. <laughs> and then Matt Smith comes on, which I didn't, I, um, I didn't actually sort of think. I mean, I, I, I haven't seen all of Matt's, Matt Smith's stories yet. So I'm a bit more familiar with uh, with Tennant, and I I don't know I thought Tennant had this massive appeal with the kids, but I don't see like none of them seem to be absolutely delighted at Matt Smith was talking <laughs> to them, which I believe is the idea. And I thought Matt Smith is very well, and he's a very good actor, and he plays plays it fun because he's actually sort of getting you involved in the experience. That's the idea. He refers to you as shoppers because obviously they're trying to think of some generic way for Joe Public to get them involved um, but I didn't I didn't sort of see any of the kids sort of thinking oh it's the doctor who's talking to us I think kids nowadays are too clever Ooh, I, I think I, I'm not sure I mean you're right we did have quite a bunch of um, fairly bored kids I think going around with us because this is my second time that I've been around and yeah the first time I wasn't very well I wasn't really taking much in but the kids who were on my tour then did respond far more uh, to Matt Smith and I, I do think he has got an appeal with the children and especially as his doctor is quite childlike mm. so I think it's just interesting you know any given experience and any given day if you'd excuse the pun. And then he says oh look out for the TARDIS it's a blue box and I already knew where the TARDIS was going to appear because before I mean it's trouble you do anything with James Rockliffe if he's done it before he's going to going to tell you what to expect so he's like all right watch out for that wall <laughs> <laughs> it's only because I wanted to be near is the TARDIS yeah. door so we could get in first. That's Never right. mind those kids, just for to get in the TARDIS. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. So I already knew where the TARDIS was going to appear because James had hinted to me, you know, <laughs> like, I'm not going to give you a commentary, Oliver, but um, watch out for that roll, <laughs> watch out for that wall. <laughs> and so very, fair enough, the TARDIS lands and this um, screen uh, moves aside. I mean, I mean, you know, you're you're actually taken around by a guide. I think that guide would be far better if he was dressed in a costume. But, uh, if anyone listening ever went to the Doctor Who exhibition in Clangochlin back in the day, um, they did a really cool thing where you'd be walking around and suddenly a Cyberman would be hunting you down. You know, you'd, you'd be in this exhibition on your own because it was in the middle of nowhere, you know, and suddenly the Cyberman's just walking around the exhibition with you. And, and as a kid, that was really good fun. And I think that's the only... I mean, if, if anyone's been to, like, York Dungeons or things like that, I mean, but... but um, well, not just... It's a chain of dungeons in this country where you can go... Um, they have real actors actually involved, and I think that's the only thing. The only real, actual, real person involved with you is a bored, part-time student who's working here on, an, on a weekend... And you know they don't get they don't get involved in the fun of it at all. That's um, you know that's just me being a bit mardy. But um, you know the, the person taking you around, he's seen it all before. So I think it would be better if they were dressed up as a Sontaran or something like that, and saying you know actually saying, come on, through here, 
and, and then the kids will run the other way. Yeah, we. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I guess I know what you mean, but I guess the guys are there for people's safety. But you're right; it does yeah. take away a little bit from the experience. But that's very, very British, you know. You try and recreate an experience so you feel like you're on a television program, and then you put a tour guide in it saying, you know, "Take turn left, turn left, take the second Tardis door," you know, on the road. And it does kind of take something away. I agree. But um, explain to me or describe to me your feelings when you went through those TARDIS doors and you were suddenly presented with a replica of, of Matt Smith's TARDIS. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great... It, it's a funny thing, actually. I don't know how close it is. Is it an actual proper replica? It thing? is very, very, very close indeed. Yes, yeah. I mean, as much as it can be for what it needs to be. There's no second level, there's no... Uh, basement, if you like. There's no glass floor to look through, but the console panel and the roundels, if you can still call them roundels, they're more like hexagonals these days. Uh, but yeah, absolutely pinpoint accurate, I think, yeah. Yeah, it was good fun. I mean, uh, it's like two two levels as you walk in for people to stand on around the console and there are uh, little uh, levers um, which are for the kids. Apparently. Uh, apparently, you know. I think that there was one dad, a sort of movie style boy. You know, he was he was straight there. You know, he thought I'm going to be the navigator. He didn't realise it was about six navigators. You know, um, so yeah. Then the doctor comes on. You know, if you've got a you've got a switch in front of you, it says navigator, press it now, press it now. And of course, it doesn't actually do anything, but the kids are involved. And um, and the floor moves. You know, it's all on yeah, hydraulics. Yeah, lots of hydraulics, absolutely. And I think just a bit of a hint here, if you do go, stand on the second row because yeah. you're nearer the outer edge of the circle which is what the TARDIS console is based on. And the feeling and the vibrations are much more noticeable the closer to the circumference you are. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that was really good. And not only that, you get a good view then of all of the kids pressing the buttons who don't necessarily believe that yeah. their pushing, yeah. their manic pushing, is completely redundant. You know, it, it's, it's good that they just sit there and push buttons and enjoy it. And uh, we, we're then introduced to, um, to the back door of the TARDIS. Now, I'm going to be honest here. When I first heard about the experience, someone told me that you walked in to the TARDIS, and then the TARDIS takes off, and then you go out the door and you're a different place. So I therefore assumed you'd walk out the same door and you'd be somewhere else, i.e. while it's moving the hydraulics, you're going to actually spin this thing around, which would have been a really cool idea, obviously horrendously expensive. But I think that, that could have been something really really fun you know so they could have just you know you have it all on a pivot and you move you know it just spins around and so you're going back out the same door like you would so to go out the back door i mean i know it's an exhibition and it's an experience but um yeah it will happen one day it will happen one day we were told i think uh, by the some chap who had some input into the design of it that they were looking into that on this occasion and i think for some time that was the plan you know, the whole TARDIS would shift around slowly and you go out the door, you come in and you're somewhere else. But the back door, ooh, yes, all right, they write it into Matt Smith's, they write it into Matt Smith's script so it makes story sense. But anyway, I mean, if you've got to have a back door, they've done it in the best way because when the back door does open, you're straight into a kind of Dalek corridor, a very traditional Dalek corridor from the 60s. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was the one bit where I thought, I said out loud, oh, here we go, because I heard, you hear the sound as the TARDIS is landing, I mean, you can hear this, dun, 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 dun. Dalek heartbeat, yeah, Dalek. almost, yeah. And um, I thought, here we go. And I think this little section uh, is probably the best bit, in my opinion. Well, no, there's two, two, two highlights for me. One, 
is this next bit. That particular experience with the TARDIS set I found quite inhibiting because you don't have the freedom. Although there's more stuff coming up that appeased my fandom, if you will. But I'll tell you about that in a minute. But then this next sequence is actually really cool where you go into, um, into the Dalek, you know, mothership. Uh, you're actually on the bridge of the ship, I suppose. And um, you're surrounded by one Dalek comes out, the voice of Nick Briggs. So in terms of it, it is very... It, it's official, you know, it's true to the show. You've got the real Daleks, you've got the real Dalek voice. Um, and then some more come out, which I didn't clock when you went went in. So it was quite fun because then another came out all silhouetted with smoke. You know, they, they put in a lot of effort. Then you all get scanned, scanning these humans, then they threaten to exterminate you. I was really hoping some like children would start crying or something, but <laughs> none of them did. I mean, Matt, Matt Smith comes on and he said, no, 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 don't do that, you know. Um, and then, the, the, then, you get, then they're under attack. There's some rogue... Wrote the Black yeah. Daleks. This, this is the part where you may not necessarily pick up because you haven't seen all of Series 5, but there's a big debate about a game, two Dalek factions, hence the new Daleks were born. And this ship is attacked by the old Daleks, and so you've got a Dalek war there, and you don't realise it immediately, but there are three windows on the left-hand side at this, this particular... As you walk oh, yeah, into the right. left-hand yeah. side, you don't realise that they are basically windows to the spaceship yeah. uh, until you suddenly start seeing a screen behind them. And it's not done so that the windows become screens. There's a big screen behind the windows. So yeah. it, it gives the absolute perfect illusion of a space battle. Yeah. And you're all of a sudden you're part of it. And that for me was wow. Yeah. You know, that really was quite a impressive. Very feature. much so. And because, as James says, the screen is behind the windows, you can walk around and the view changes yeah. to to what your you know, true perception would be if you were there. So They've given that a lot of thought, and it's very, very well done. And obviously, all the, uh, you know, the, the Daleks start going nuts because they're under attack. You know, that's that's a, that. I think that's a highlight. That's, that's one of the two highlights for me, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then it all, all calms down. I can't, why are we allowed to leave again? Who? Does, what? Yeah, I think that's because the Daleks or the rogue Dalek faction had been appeased and the Doctor had opened the time portal from his TARDIS. Oh, that's right. Again, a bit, bit, bit loose and a bit convenient. Yeah, because then you're you walking outside of, a, you're walking out of the TARDIS again, aren't you? Yeah, you walk you, out you that walk particular down ship a... and you walk back into the TARDIS again in theory. Yeah. You go through another pair of TARDIS doors, but this is a different room. And... Which uh, reminded me of the uh, Destiny of the Doctor's PC game <laughs> from, from the uh, mid to late 90s. Where, uh, for some reason, the TARDIS just had loads of monsters and alien ships within it. So that was a little homage there. Anthony uh, Ainley's best out. Oh, totally. Good old Ainley. But the, there is one thing that is slightly wasted before you get into the final room, and that's just this little, well, it's kind of raised walkway, not very long, you know, it's less than five seconds and you're over it, but on either side you've got the Weeping Angels. Yeah. And you're not actually encouraged to stop by our oh-so-friendly tour guide there. No. You're encouraged to move straight into the final room. Yeah. And I don't know whether that's something to do with the timings, the way I think that the so. experience is, is, is actually set up. Because work. in a lot of times, the, uh, the experience in each room begins while people are still walking in. That's so if right. you're at the back of a queue, you're going to miss the first couple of lines in each 
each sequence. So, so it's you, obviously timed very carefully. So when that's you, why. you pleased to have someone telling you, hey, Oliver, stand by the TARDIS wall. Yeah, James, James had it all worked out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you're moving into that final room then. Um, we've got some 3D footage. Yeah, you're again. Given, um, 3D glasses, yeah. Beautifully designed again because you've got a big kind of wall uh, that's in the same kind of style as the underhenge within the finale to last year. And again, that the, the stone kind of parts, and you've got this big 3D screen, and you're just watching a big time tunnel, really, with all the Daleks, the Cybermen, yeah. and the Weeping Angels. Now, for me, that 3D was good, but I've seen better at the VFI. Mm. But you were quite impressed by that. 3D. Yeah, I really liked it. I, mean, I sort of work with 3D within my job, and um, that that was really really nicely done. You know, you know, the, the, the Weeping Angels claws come right out at you. The the Daleks eye stalks and sink plungers, you know, and the, the Cybermen <laughs> shoot their laser bolts, which look like they're coming right at you. So, I think that was really really good. Yeah, and it's a good, it's a good finale. Um, so I was, I was pretty happy with that as a whole. You know, um, I think in a way though, you want that earlier on to get the kids involved because I think that's what the kids like the most. It's a funny thing. I, I didn't sort of gauge the kids. Resp- I don't know. Maybe the kids loved it, but the ones who were on our lot, they, they just looked a little bit um, underwhelmed. <laughs> I mean. Um, the kid in me came out afterwards when you when you left the uh, the experience went in the exhibition for me the, the money well spent is is actually the exhibition afterwards where where you can go in and look at two TARDIS sets and James and I were prattling about having our photos taken waving our sonic screwdrivers you know um, and that that's great and, and particularly the 80s console um, that, that's that was really special and I mean, it's annoying, you, can, you just want to touch it, but you're obviously not allowed because some lunatics would come along and break it. Um, but that's really great fun. That's really special. Uh, so as a whole, I think it's brilliant. I mean, very good, good for the kids, the experience. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it's trying to combine a performance with an experience. Um, trying to do a very inclusive play, almost. It's very elaborate, very based on a particular television programme, clearly. But I think on the whole... I think it works quite well because there is actually quite a tight plot throughout the whole thing as well. There is a story to be told. The Doctor gets stuck in the Pandorica for the second time, which once again links nicely into uh, Series 5. There are some nice comedic lines. Once again, I think Matt Smith is probably towards the more zany end of the scale in terms of his performance, and the kids do like that. I, I, I thought it was okay. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I appreciated it far more second time than I did the first. And I don't think I'll come again, but I'd certainly encourage people to go along to it if they haven't had the opportunity to do so, so far. And if you are overseas and you're not in the UK, you're definitely not going to get a chance to see this, then I hope Oliver and my description has, has given you some idea of what it's like and uh, hopefully given you a more three-dimensional, if you excuse the pun, once again, <laughs> idea of what this exhibit is like. Absolutely, it was good fun. I hope I haven't made it. I hope I haven't been too harsh on it. As a whole, it's a very good thing. They've they've put a lot of time and effort. And I'm really glad that it exists. Um, but for me, the, the exhibition afterwards for the diehard old school fans is far far superior. 
Uh, and that's a bit for the adults, really. Even even the kids, they run around saying, oh, look, it's, that's the old doctors. That's the, I remember one, one lad saying, is that, that's the celery doctor's TARDIS. That's the celery doctor's TARDIS. So there you go. It's quite interesting to hear how they relate to each doctor. Um, and obviously James is getting recognised all over the place with his Doctor Who podcast T-shirt on. Well, Oliver, thank you very much indeed for coming on just to talk about the exhibition. Thanks for coming with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. No and problem. if anyone's ever interested, twitter.com forward slash Oliver Crocker. Follow us on Dad's Army as well and uh, Doctor Who and filmmaking and all sorts, you know. Yeah, come along. Have a get in touch. Well, I sat there for the entire 20 minutes, James. I'm horribly envious. I wish I was there. Um, I believe the experience is moving to Cardiff next year. Yeah, it's it's only in London uh, for a couple more months. I, I can't remember when it opens, but it was around the time that you and I were in Los Angeles, Trevor. So it's had a good old run um, in, in central London. And uh, the whole exhibition itself is um, it's constantly tweaked as well and updated. So they've, they've got Kazran's... Um, organ kind of weather controller thing in there now as well so when it moves to Cardiff I fully expect it to be updated with a whole load of season six stuff. Does that sort of make it like put it a bit out of the way because I mean I mean I'm not really familiar with U of K geography that much Cardiff seems like a long way away from your perspective I mean will, will they still maintain the same sort of numbers and audience? I've I got to be honest, I don't really know. I, I think it would be unlikely to attract the kind of audiences that it's going to get in London anywhere else in the UK. But if it's going to move somewhere and still maintain a degree of, of interest and popularity, then I think Cardiff's the obvious choice. I mean, even people based within the U of K um, seem to travel to Cardiff now to look at Torchwood's. Uh, locations uh, because they, they, they film extensively or they used to film extensively certainly series one and two um, all around uh, the suburbs of Cardiff and outside it as well and people used to make trips just to see that so I think the exhibition will provide a kind of focal point for people who are interested in the franchise essentially that Doctor Who has become now and mm. it's yeah I, I think it's probably going to be able to sustain itself for a short period of time. I'm not particularly certain how long it's it's supposed to stay in Cardiff before it closes. I mean, I don't really want to talk about anything such as vulgar as money, but um, <laughs> how, how much does the experience set you back? Well, it cost me uh, about £20. I think it was... 19 20 pounds something along those lines and depending on where you buy your ticket from it varies but for me i i think it's it's certainly worth the money even if you spend just the 20 minutes going through the actual um attraction if you like and and then spending 10 15 minutes in the uh, in the exhibition it's 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 well worth it yeah, it sounds like it was a lot of fun horribly jealous as per usual being all the good, way over good. here in the, in the colonies but that's pretty much par for the course for me, I suppose. But Yeah, I suppose so. But I do wonder, you know, I mean, we haven't really been told about the future of, uh, of the exhibition beyond its stint in Cardiff. And looking at it, yes, it would be a logistical nightmare, but, you know, organisations do this kind of thing all the time. And, and I wonder whether it could go on tour. And, and that, you know, there's a huge fan base in, in sure America. It there certainly yeah. is in Australia. I can't see any difficulty in, you know, packing up all the stuff in a few crates sticking it on a plane and then, you know, 
getting out the Allen key here in Australia and putting it all back together. <laughs> I, I, I think it would um, pose slightly different challenges to say, I don't know, a, a pop star who tours around the world and having, you know, these really complicated moving sets. But they, they do do it. And, and you know, I, th- I think the whole experience is, is nowhere near as um, geared up to to have like roadies and uh you know set builders moving around around the world regularly but if if it did for instance decide to go to uh Brisbane Trev for for 3 or 4 months if there was a market or a demand for it then certainly they would only have to move it on one occasion because a lot of the stuff is visual you know there's screens around the experience they could easily introduce a new story into it and make a few tweaks uh, to the rooms and redress them. So I, I think personally, there's there's a lot of longevity in the whole concept of the experience. If the people behind it think one, it's commercially sensible to do so, and it is actually as logistically possible as as you and I are saying that it should be. Okay, episode 82 of the Doctor Who podcast was an interview with Andrew Smith. Andrew wrote Full Circle back in 1980, I think it was, season 18. And he's also been writing a game for Big Finish recently. And he's written a companion chronicle that's read by Lulla Ward called The Invasion of E-Space. And back in episode 82, we asked a question, gave you, the listener, the opportunity to win a copy of that play. The question was... What does CVE stand for? And Trev, what's the answer to that question? Do I get to win if I know the answer? Kinda. Yeah, all right. <laughs> the, the answer, what is a CVE? It is a charged vacuum emboitment. Oh, congratulations, Trev. Thank you. So That's wonderful. I have to admit, before I'd spoken to, to Andrew, I'd completely forgotten what a CVE was and, and how prominent that particular invention was throughout season 18. But I suppose the, the, the question we should be asking and then answering for our listeners is not only what does it stand for, but what is a charged vacuum embodiment? Oh, do tell, do tell. Well, it is the gateway between the various universes, and in particular from a Doctor Who point of view, between eSpace, which is the other universe where Adric was uh, found, and N-Space, which is our universe. It was explained in Legopolis... Um, because the master tried to um, manipulate the CVEs to, I think, basically overheat the universe, didn't he? He he tried to shut them down, and it would therefore destroy the universe as a result, because there was no way for... I think they explained something like excess energy to discharge between the different universes, and... So that's that's what they're there for, I believe. Wow. And there's me thinking it was a dodgy 1980s special effect. <laughs> Mr. Christopher H. Bidmead would be rolling in his grave if you heard you say that. <laughs> Indeed. So therefore, there is no winner to this competition because Trev has won. No, that's Huzzah! not true. <laughs> what do I win? Well, you, you win a copy of The Invasion of Space, But no, Hooray! seriously. We are going to announce the winner now, and um, it, it's a signed copy, incidentally, of that CD. Andrew Smith signed it, so um, so it, it, it's certainly worth having. Trev, a number, please, between 1 and 36. Only 36 entries. 36 entries on this one. Yeah. That's disappointing, people. Come on, people. This is a signed copy 
of the invasion of eSpace, signed by the author, no less. Come on, guys, 36 entries. We want more for the next one, and we'll, I think we'll remedy that in a few minutes. But um, as for a number between 1 and 36, I'm going to go for a number I can see right on my screen in front of me. Number 23. Number 23. That is Paula Cartwright. Congratulations, Paula. You've won a copy of The Invasion of eSpace, written by Andrew Smith, and the cover is signed. Bravo. So Bravo. congratulations, Paula. You've won the Companion Chronicle, and that will be in the post to you very, very soon. Now, Trev, you, you alluded to this just a little while ago. We've got another competition, haven't we? Well, we do, actually. But before we do, I just want to give a bit of a... Um a bit of a plug for a, a fantastic book I just finished the other day, um, The Man Who Invented the Daleks by Alwyn W. Turner. It, it's a fantastic book that I got my little hands on a few weeks ago and devoured it very, very quickly. Now, the title probably gives it away. It, it's actually a um, biography of um, author, writer, um, general, um, Dalek creator, Terry Nation. And... It's a really, really good book. Now, b before I picked it up, I always thought of Terry Nation as the guy who um, created the Daleks and wanted an exorbitant amount of money every time they were used on screen. And, and even after his death, his uh, agent um, was the main person who basically said, well, you have to pay us a really huge amount of money if you want to use my um, uh, client's creations. And that seemed to be what stalled, you know, the Daleks returning quite a lot of the time, just this whole money issue. But um, I was reading this this fantastic book, The Man Who Invented the Daleks. It really paints a, a fascinating picture of Terry Nation. Now, not only does it give you anything you'd want to know about Terry, but it also paints a backdrop for the times he worked in. So um, he, he started off his, his early career as a comedy scriptwriter for like the Hancock Half Hour and uh, various other self-pen things that he uh, got put to screen. Um, so not only does it give you, you Terry's backstory, but it also paints a picture of, I suppose, what the economic climate and the political climate and what the uh, climate of television and film was at each stage of Terry's career. So it, it was really interesting to see, you know, the effect his works and especially the creation of the Daleks had on popular culture. But not seen from the viewpoint of, oh, this guy is the guy that keeps holding out for more money each time the Daleks are used. But um, more as a guy that, you know, just created this fantastic property and um, really isn't the bad man, I suppose, that I suppose a lot of people think he is. Um, it, it was a really interesting book. So if anything, this book really changed my viewpoint of Terry Nation. The Man Who Invented the Daleks by, by Alan W. Turner. Really, really good book. If, if you can pick yourself up a copy, do, because it shows a really balanced, well-formed picture of Terry Nation, his whole career, of which the Daleks is a major part, of course, but it gives you every other thing that he's done throughout his entire career. And it, it was a really, really good read. A, a page-turner, one might say. And if you don't want to go out and buy one, then you may be able to win one. First prize. First prize in this brand new competition is a hardback edition of The Man Who Invented Daleks that Trevor's just spoken about, and also a hard copy edition of The Coming of the Terror Files, donated by Ross from the Creeping with Armstrong podcast. So that's the first prize. Now, Trev, you also have a copy of Terry Nation's biography here, don't you? I do, I do, and I'd like to offer that up as a second prize. So if you are not able to win the first prize, then you at least get 
the second prize, which is a copy of The Man Who Invented the Daleks by Alvin W. Turner. Fantastic. So the subject matter of these two books is Daleks and the 11th Doctor and Amy. So we need a question, Trev, that involves both. So which episodes involve the 11th Doctor and Daleks? And Amy? Yeah, and Amy. Mm, yeah, that's, a, that, that's an interesting question, James. Mm. I, it is, I, I think, it is. In fact, there's I only might have one. have the answer to that. I, I, I wouldn't <laughs> mind winning a copy of that uh, book by Alan W. Turner. Well, you want to read the second prize before you send it out then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd better win first prize. Well, let's ask a question about Victory of the Daleks then. And just for good measure, we'll chuck in a Doctor Who podcast question as well. The question to win these two books is as follows and I've lost it where is it <laughs> just make oh, up your own is... questions listeners and send it in to uh, feedback at the doctor yeah, um, just, they're, just they're guaranteed to be right then yeah say so what the f- James on that's a good question <laughs> right here we go right I, I, I just thought you were building up suspense when you were pausing there no I lost what I, well I, I tried to get away with that when I realized I'd lost where I've written the question right here we go <laughs> okay Ian McNeese played Churchill in Victory of the Daleks on which episode of the Doctor Who podcast was he interviewed oh, that's too easy James come on well, it, it, it's going to be so easy for you listeners to enter because all you need to do is put the episode number in your email and send it to us at feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com and please put book competition or something along those lines in the subject title so I can easily pick them out from all the other feedback that we receive. James, that that's too easy a question. I mean, all our listeners have to do basically is create an email, put episode 46 in it, and send it to us. Oh, come on. Yes. We, yes, we no. can't make it too easy. No, well, the last thing we would want to do is give away the answer as part of the competition, because that would be no, really, so really silly, No, so we will not it? do that. Mm. So let's just hope we can get away with it and they won't be able to find the page on our website which lists all the episodes we've ever done. Mm. They'll, mm. they'll never be able to figure out the episode title. Indeed. Or the anyway. episode number. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, good luck with that competition, and uh, we'll be drawing that in a couple of weeks' time. Next week on the Doctor Who podcast, what do we have? Well, I'll answer that question right now. We have um, Tom and I's look at the Big Finish trilogy. I suppose it's called unofficially the... Uh, Thomas Brewster trilogy because um, he, he returns to the series for a couple of stories and uh, the, the last of which is quite a cracking little axon tale and uh, funnily enough we have an interview with uh, I suppose the man behind the mask of the axon Bernard Holly. he provided the voices for not only the uh, axons in uh, Claws of Axos from John, the John Pertwee era but also made a reappearance in the uh, Big Finish Axon Tale, which we'll be reviewing next week. So uh, certainly something to look out for. Mm, absolutely. And and Bernard actually was in Claws of Axos. He was the chap all painted in gold as well. So, oh. yeah. It, oh, so it was he wasn't really, the guy really... on... Oh, so he wasn't the hermit on the bike that got killed. No, that was Pigbin Josh. How about that, for instant recall? Do we have an interview with him? We don't, I'm afraid. He fell off his bike. Oh, I hope he has a speedy recovery. 
Yes, indeed. Yes, but so uh, yeah. So tune in next week, and you get to hear what we thought about uh, the, um, the the Thomas Brewster trilogy, and of course that interview with Mister Axon Man himself, Trev. It's been a pleasure getting back in the caravan with you after all this time. Yes, it's been fine. Thank you. Hmm. Oh well, you'll be joined by someone who can uh, at least analyse a little bit better than me next week when Tom returns <laughs> from Glastonbury, so long as he does actually make it alive. As we're recording, I, I believe Tom is preparing for his uh, debut at Glastonbury, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Tom is playing at Glastonbury this time. He's not just going to watch, so uh, Tom will be on stage at some point. And uh, yeah, if you've been lucky enough to see him on stage, then uh, by all means let us know how good he was, because he keeps telling mm. us he's a professional musician, but... Quite honestly, he can't sing, and I've I've never heard him play the guitar particularly in tune. Have you, Trev? No, no. Well, he's a blues artist, so he doesn't really need to play the guitar well. Oh, that's where you play all the stuff out of tune on purpose, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, oh, you, you can gotcha. purposely sing really badly and like jangle all the notes like out of order, <laughs> and oh, that's well. blues. Okay, yeah. well, good luck to you, Tom. I hope it goes well, and uh, you get knickers thrown on the stage as opposed to bottles of beer. <laughs> and we'll catch up with you all next week listeners bye for now indeed we shall that was the Doctor Who podcast which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com if you have any feedback please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com you can also find us on Twitter Facebook and via the Doctor Who podcast forums thank you for listening take care I think we're almost there, Trev. <laughs> Should we just do next next week? What um, is, we don't know what next week is. Oh, we the, do, don't we? We do. We do, we do. It's, it's do, the do, uh, Thomas Brewster trilogy. Okay. Do you want to do that bit? Or shall I do it? Oh, I'll do it since, since, since you're not going to be here. Go for it. And, and Bernard Holly as well. Comment. Let's announce that. We've actually got the interview with Bernard Holly. That'd be good. Okay, so we got Bernard Holly because he was an excellent... Was he actually in the Big Finish thing? Yes. Yeah, oh, big time. Excellent. Yeah, yeah he, he was in the, uh, the Feast of Axos, and he was also yes. in Claws of Axos with John Pertwee. And Tomb yeah, of the He was in Claws of Axos. He was in Claws. Goodness. I'm, I'm the host of an international Doctor Who podcast, <laughs> and you don't think I know what episode Bernard Holly was in. Okay, what, I was what, merely what pe- after clarification as to whether he featured in the Big Finish Axon production. Okay, well, since since you know Goodness so much, sake. since you know so much, which Patrick Troughton story was Bernard in? Well, he, he was in that one which has him in the credits, obviously, James. Oh, Come on. Yes. No, gee, James, <laughs> you're, you're such a you're such a dill. <laughs> Two minutes uh, later, man. <laughs> <laughs>